You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Next on Washington Post Live. This is where we take a closer look at rising changemakers, young people who have caught our eye from the hill to the entertainment industry and everywhere in between. I'm Helena Andrews-Dyer, a pop culture reporter here at the Washington Post. And today, my guest is the Grammy Awards newly minted Best New Artist, who also took home the trophy for Best Jazz Vocal Album, Samara Joy. Joins me now to talk about sharing jazz with Gen Z. Samara, welcome to Washington Post Live. Hi, how are you? It's so amazing to be here with you this afternoon. So great to have you, and let's dive in. Uh, You are the first jazz musician to win Best New Artist since 2011, and that's when Esperanza Spalding beat out Justin Bieber and Drake. Uh, You won over popular acts like Lotto and Anita. What do you think your win says about jazz and its popularity? Hopefully my win says that um, it doesn't matter where you come from when you're exposed to good music and when you're given the opportunity um, to express yourself and, and find your gift and find your passion and make it known to the world, that great things can happen, no matter the genre. Great art, great music finds its audience, right? That's amazing. And in your acceptance speech for Best New Artist, you gave a shout out to the Bronx where you were born and raised. So let's talk about that. Growing up in the birthplace of hip hop, right? And as a member of Gen Z, which I know a lot of people like to talk about, how did a classical genre like jazz find its way to you? I actually, so I I went to public school uh, my whole <laughs> time being here in the Bronx. Um, and towards the end of high school, I went to a school called the Fordham High School for the Arts, um, where I joined um, a, a jazz elective. Um, and I learned a couple of songs with them. I, I had a good time, but I wasn't really super interested in jazz until I went to a state school called SUNY Purchase um, for the jazz studies program. And I completely immersed myself in it. I couldn't I couldn't believe that I had never heard, you know, people like Sarah Vaughn before and people like Carmen McRae before. And so I just wanted to dive in. And you mentioned some of the greats who you have been compared to yourself, the woman we know by first name only, right? Billy, Ella, Sarah. Uh, But talk to us about your musical inspirations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I was growing up uh, in the boogie down, um, I listen, I like to listen to a lot of music that my parents were into. So like um, Luther Vandross, we had him playing all the time. Stevie Wonder, my dad is a bass player. So Brothers Johnson, you know, Michael Jackson and Motown and that kind of thing. Gospel, Kimberrell, like commissioned and all of these incredible artists, uh, Jill Scott. Like it was just so many to name, so, too many to name. Um, and so I just... I can't pick just one. I was listening to all of them. And it's like, you know, maybe not the the same music that my classmates were listening to, but it's really what I enjoyed. And so let's talk about your album, Linger a While. Uh, this is your sophomore project, but your first with the iconic Verve Records. Yeah. Tell us about what inspired Linger a While. And I have to know if the rumors are true and did you actually record an entire album in two days? Yes. How? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we had uh, getting Linger Wild together. Um, 
was a night was a great process because I had the opportunity after the first record um, to record to excuse me to tour um, and to play gigs and to be on the road um, and I wanted to change the set list up a little bit and so I started integrating as I was listening to more songs I started integrating more songs into the set list um, and when it came time to record and to pitch the album to other labels um, I had the songs together I had the band together we had just come off the road so. We got in the studio. I think I recorded like seven songs in the first day and then the rest the following day. Um, pitched it to the labels. Um, Verve, you know, we had a great connection from the jump um, and they helped us release it about a couple months after that. And then began, you know, <laughs> all of the, the wonderful opportunities that followed. And then we all got to listen to it. The public got to listen to Linger a while. Um, tell me about what it's like being part of Verve, the label that as we talked about, the greats, your inspirations, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn, Billie Holiday were once also a part of. What's mm -hmm. that history like? It's really incredible because I never imagined, one, that I would be, you know, following in the footsteps of such incredible vocalists and, and um, their musicality inspires me to this day. And so to be um, a part of the same recording legacy as they are as far as being on part being on verve records um and not only getting to honor them but also honoring my own voice and getting to honor those inspirations that i mentioned before and having jazz be a part of my musical uh identity now and getting to share all of that with people through this you know remarkable you know through through the help with the help of this remarkable team on on verve record label as far as you know digital marketing and you know in in-person shows in New York City, all this promotion and stuff like that, it really is a blessing. You know, they're they're um, honoring the tradition and you know have a foot in the contemporary as well. And I love that. On that same note, right, talking about history and tradition and the contemporary present day, we have to talk about social media. Uh, Samara, you have. 300,000 followers on TikTok. That number is probably bigger today as I speak. Um, where you share videos of yourself singing your own songs and singing classic jazz standards and covers. We have a clip. Let's take a look. And that would be but beautiful. Yes, that would be also beautiful. I It's amazing. Uh, bathroom acoustics. D does the bathroom have the best acoustics? Oh, ever. And that was in a hotel bathroom. It's like I'd be trying them out. I'm like that. That one. That one has some pretty good acoustics. I remember that. I remember that. <laughs> that was awesome. That was awesome. Um, why do you think TikTok has been such an effective tool for sharing your love of jazz of the genre? At first, I didn't think it would be because. Um, mm -hmm. As one knows, it's it's more uh, uh, I guess marketed towards a younger generation, younger than I. Um, sometimes I feel like it's like 23. Yeah, it's, you're you're getting getting a little too old to be on here. But um, when I you know when I started posting and I when I, when I started really interacting with people on 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 TikTok, um, 
I realized that there's an audience for everybody. You know, there's like millions of people watching so many comments, so much content um, in a day, you know, so why not add a video of me singing into the mix and just see, you know, who likes it and who doesn't. And I found that the response has been really, I mean, it's beyond anything that I could have um, imagined or aimed for. Um, but it's really, it's great that people are attracted to what I love to do just as me, you know, without anything else. I'll try a TikTok dance once in a while, but I won't post it. It's in the drafts. Um, but I, I'm glad that just singing is enough for right now. Okay. We need the we need that content too. We need the TikTok dances. I gotta see it. Um and speaking of sort of like the young people that are on TikTok, are you surprised at all about how much your music has connected with the young people on that platform? Equally as surprised. Yeah, because I, again, I just didn't think, I mean, there's so much good music in the world. Like it's, and we have so much access to it now because of um, technology. And so the fact that, you know, people find it, um, find my music and they, they're, you know, it's present enough in their mind that they want to add it to a playlist or share it with somebody on social media, repost is it's really it's, I'm always grateful for it because you don't have to, right? There's so there's so much available to us at any given time, but you know it's amazing that people respond in the ways that they do and, and continue to support. And I've read that you feel a bit conflicted, I'll say, about being called the first Gen Z jazz star. I'm putting that in quotes. These are my quotes. Um, why is that? Talk about that. Why why is there some kind of push and pull between that moniker for you? Uh, I guess because it it's, makes it seem like, you know, I'm bringing it back to life or like, you know, I'm the main voice responsible for, you know, bringing it to people my age, which, which may be true in, in some way, but I just, from my perspective, I'm new to it as well. So I'm like, I don't want to get the responsibility of like, uh, uh, introducing it to people when I'm still learning about, you know, learning about it just as much as the next person. Um, Okay, learning about it just as much as the next person. And so, um, yeah, I, I part of me is like, it's always been here. You know, pe there's people who, who I meet at shows who are like, I've been listening to jazz, you know, since before you were born. I've been a jazz fan and it's so great to see you, you know, um, because there are so many underground fans. But at the same time, I know I'm, I'm grateful, you know, that people, um, their first introduction to jazz is maybe one of my shows or song that they see on, on social media. Um, and then I can you know, expose everybody more to how wonderful the genre is. And that's interesting you say, so there's a little bit of pressure there, right? To be sort of like the jazz ambassador. Like, do you feel a responsibility to make jazz more popular or more accessible? Mm, accessible, yes, because um, I do think that if I didn't, if I wasn't able to go to school, um, like a state school, you know, and have state financial aid and, and you know, participate in this program and find them and, and discover the music for the first time that I wouldn't be doing this. Um, but it was it was made accessible to me. And so in turn, I, I want to make sure, you know, that in everything that I do, I'm thinking about, you know, what else can be done to share it with um, everybody, you know, whether it's in my community, you know, there wasn't a lot of clubs in the Bronx, you know, growing up that I could go to or like see concerts and stuff like that. So maybe hosting shows at a, a, the, a performing arts center in the Bronx or at a school in the Bronx or at my own high school in the Bronx or um, 
you know, making it so that whenever I'm on tour, connecting with a school while I'm on the road and having students from a certain program come and see the show, that kind of thing. I definitely am am cognizant of wanting to make it um, more accessible to people because it's not like you have to take an entry exam in order to get into jazz. Like you really only need like one song, you know, and then you're in. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely thinking about uh, accessibility, but pressure, pressure not as much because I'm just one of the many voices you know who are contributing to keeping uh, this music alive you said you only need one song only one to song. get into jazz tell us what your one song is oh oh my gosh my one song would probably be Sarah Vaughn singing stairway to the stars it's my favorite Ooh. okay Got to look that up. Everyone got to look that up after we're done with this conversation. Uh, we have an audience question from okay. Don Nix in Arkansas who asks, what advice might you share with young musicians about how to explore and discover musicians and music of the past? Mm. I would say that there's no one way to do it. Um, everybody has their own, you know, uh, likes and dislikes as far as, you know, um, sounds that they're attracted to and stuff like that but i would say if you if you have a musician that you really like you really love their sound you really love their compositions or a singer that you really love you really love the way they sing focus on that you know find out exactly what it is that makes it so special that you love about them um and then expand on it you know in your own in your own artistry in your own creativity um but focus just as much on just as much as your Focus just as much on your own creative voice as you do on studying others' creative voices, because that's how you grow. Mm. You have won the Grammy. You're currently on tour. What's next for you? Mm. Well, I am hoping um, to record a holiday album with my family and go on tour and maybe bring special guests at Grammys, Kirk Franklin. I hope you're listening. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry about the connection. Okay, so holiday album and with mm -hmm. some special guests. That's what you said. That's amazing. Um, I read that initially, before you got into jazz, before you got into music, that you wanted to be an actress. What Ooh. made you focus on singing? realizing I wasn't good at acting. Um, I tried the musical theater route um, and I really enjoyed it because it's nice, you know, getting to get into character with, with certain songs and like, you know, really get into it and immerse yourself in what um, the person who is speaking in the song might be feeling and be able to express that. Um, but I can't act. I, I was in a movie though recently um, where I was singing uh, it just came out on Apple TV. It's called Sharper, um, and it has it's John Lithgow, Sebastian Stan, um, and Julianne Moore. Um, and I'm like singing in the bathroom, in the background, um, with like a nice dress and stuff. So I'll do that, you know, I'll, like be in the background singing and and providing the vibes. But I don't know about I don't know about acting and, and on screen yet. I can't. I'm not ready for that. Not ready yet, but it could still be in your future, right? There are some, we talked about the greats. There are so many great stories that haven't been told about Ella, about Billy, about Sarah. 
I think that's in your future. Is that just me? Is that only me thinking that? I'm going to go through the school of Angela Bassett and Felicia Rashad, and then we'll talk. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, speaking of your music, before we let you go, you've talked about jazz, uh, your musical inspirations, your award-winning album. Will you close us out with a line or two from your incredible cover? of Guess Who I Saw Today. Ooh. Oh. Guess who I saw today, my dear. I'd never been so shocked before. I headed blindly through the door. They didn't see me passing through. (laughs) Wow. Well, if I could stand up and clap, I would. Um, Samara, you are incredible. Grammy Award winner on tour now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Washington Post Live. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And next, we're going to take a slight turn. We're going to turn our attention to the war in Ukraine, but specifically how it's impacted young people as we're talking about young people today. This week marks one year since Russia started its attempted military invasion of the country. I'm bringing in two of my colleagues from our newsroom to talk about how the war is impacting Ukraine's young people. Siobhan O'Grady and Jeff Stein, welcome to you both. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks so much for having us. Siobhan, I want to start with you. You're the post-Cairo bureau chief, but you've spent significant amounts of time in Ukraine over the last year. Talk to us about what you've seen on the ground and what war looks like for the country's young people. Sure. So I arrived in um, Kiev last year on February 21st, so just three days before the invasion, the full-scale invasion, I should say. And the um, the country seemed completely normal. It was like any other European capital. Um, there were tons of young people out on the streets. Uh, people were at bars. I saw people leaving the opera house. Restaurants were packed. Uh, and then three days later, everyone's worlds just turned upside down. And during those first few days of the war, there was a total mad rush to sign up to join the armed forces. And I remember just being really struck by the selflessness that so many young people, young and old, demonstrated during that time. Um, you know, there were people, middle-aged people, men and women signing up to fight, um, and there were also many young people choosing to do so. And in a blink of an eye, they were facing the kinds of decisions that most people would never be able to even contemplate. Um, and so I met a lot of different people during those days. I met two 17-year-old friends who were freshmen in university, and they were one of them was fighting on the front line on the outskirts of Kiev, and his other friend was running, managing a Molotov cocktail factory um, in, in Kiev, in the basement of a building that had been transformed. And so I remember just walking into that room, um, going down like so many flights of steps into this basement, and it was full of people from of different ages, uh, you know, creating his petrol bombs and the guy in charge was 17 years old. And I just thought like, am I in a movie? What's going on? You know, it was almost, it was just totally surreal. And those moments still strike you 
um, even now, so many months later. And as the war continues, what roles you just talked about, this teenager running a Molotov cocktail factory, what other roles are Ukraine's young people taking on as the war continues? What are they doing? Well, I've actually followed up with um, both of those young men who I met at the beginning of the war and was able to kind of track what happened to them over the course of the year. So one of them, Sviatoslav, um, I've seen a few times since then. He fought on the front line outside of Kyiv. Um, he he was 17, fighting alongside his dad in the territorial defense. He really, really wanted to see action, um, and he did see some, and he had some some close calls during those months uh, after a lot of time kind of laying low. He's an archaeology student. Uh, he really wanted to deploy to the east when the Russians retreated from Kyiv, and he wanted to go and fight um, in the east and join the army instead of being in the territorial defense for the Kyiv region, which is more of like a volunteer unit. And uh, his dad did deploy and is currently fighting in Bakhmut, which is the most dangerous um, and highly contested town in all of Ukraine right now. But uh, he asked his son to stay back and re-enroll in university. So this kid turned 18, you know, and he just went back to school to study archaeology after the experience he had. It's kind of surreal to think about. And um, meanwhile, the one who was working in the Molotov cocktail factory, Validi, he is also back in school, but he is hoping to join the armed forces and his family also survived the occupation of the area outside of Bucha, where some of the most horrific war crimes took place during the occupation of the Kyiv region. Wow, it's like an emotional whiplash almost is what you describe. Totally. Um, Speaking of emotions, Jeff, you wrote a piece recently that looked at how dating has changed for Ukraine's younger population. What surprised you the most? What was like the most interesting piece of information that you received while reporting on that story? Yeah, um, my friends and colleagues have had uh, no um, small amount of time uh, making fun of me for going to a war zone and coming back with a story about Tinder, um, but I would defend it uh, as an important piece. Um, you know, I, I think, on this topic of sort of young people and how young people have been affected by the war, there seems to be a sort of sense in the West that the Ukrainians, and I think this sense is well-founded to, to a significant extent, that they've found sort of purpose and, and meaning in this war and that, you know, obviously people here recognize the atrocities and how horrible it is to, to be at war, but there's still this, I think, undercurrent of, um, I don't, jealousy is too strong a term, but a sense that Maybe the Ukrainians have something to teach us about the West, about democracy, about um, standing up for your for your homeland, and that has fed a sort of, I think, fair to say, um, false romanticization of what it's like to be there. And I think, even just anecdotally, telling people when I was going over in, in December, there was a sort of sense of, oh wow, that's cool, and um, uh, that that sense that there's something heroic happening there, and so. With that launch point, I started to to try to interrogate that question for the civilians. You know, is it really the case that it feels the sort of heroic grand stakes? And I think what my reporting showed um, quite soberly is that any sort of Hollywood kind of vision of what it's like to um, date and be in, uh, romantically involved in war um, is illusory and, and quite um, short-lived. And, and that the reality is that war is sort of um, this relentless, brutal, 
um, ongoing low-grade sort of stress and anxiety, and that in those camp conditions, it's actually not the case that this, the Hollywood stories about falling in love in, in, in very stressful environments is, is, is true. It's actually just um, a, a huge impediment to that. And um, that was something that I was glad that we got the chance to, to bring to readers, even if it wasn't uh, as important uh, geopolitically as some of the other stories that my colleagues are doing over there. Well, as you said, all stories, right, coming out of something like this are incredibly important as we show the totality of the impact of war on a people, right? How did you land on this story specifically? And what do you think it says about how the war is impacting all Ukrainians? I, I had actually just gotten to know, um, I was working on a story that, that also came out about sort of the foreign fighters who were in Ukraine who, who went there. And I was just asking him about what life was like um, in the trenches and what they did to, to kill time. And, you know, he was like, we're on our apps and on, on our phones. And I said, you know, well, what are you looking at? And he eventually said that, um, this actually didn't end up going in the story, but he, he said that uh, his commander had told him, uh, had told the troops that they really shouldn't be looking at Tinder while they were in, in sort of um, potentially stressful environments. Uh, and I kind of laughed and said, you know, uh, is that is that is that a problem that you guys are uh, distracted by? And he's like, look, like it's very lonely. You don't see any women for months and months and months. Often, I mean, there are female soldiers, but it's a reality of of being being over there. And he said, yeah, like a lot of the guys like to swipe while they're just killing time. It's sort of like any other time killer. And I I, I thought that was just so interesting. This collision of such a contemporary phenomenon, the online modern dating scene, and this um, really almost uh, retro sort of callback retrograde kind of war that we're seeing land war in Europe. And the, the intersection of those seemed interesting, but I didn't have preconceptions of where the story would take me until I started talking to people and talking to um, some, some of our um, contacts on the ground there who I just got to know very well and sort of started talking to them about what is it like to date during the war. And they said, you know, it's actually been terrible that there's just they're so tired and they're so um, they're so filled with anxiety that they don't have the energy to go date. And, and then I, I talked to this guy, Vlad, who asked us not to use his last name, but he was telling us that, you know, he's, he's a very charming guy. He's a very handsome guy. And, and um, he showed us his Tinder profile. And he was saying that, you know, before he went to Kharkiv for a brief break, he was swiping while in literally in the trenches. And while he was doing that, he discovered, you know, he, ma he matched with a bunch of women and he, he set up a bunch of dates. But when he actually got to the dates in Kharkiv, when he actually sat down and tried to make conversation with them, the the um, psychological toll from the shelling and the bombardment and the um, just the, the exhaustion mentally of being um, a soldier. He's one of the most he goes into the gray zone, which is the area sort of beyond the front line, sort of in, in between the trenches. Um, and so it's an incredibly dangerous job. And he said, you know, I can't really bring myself to be charming and amiable and that that really impeded his ability to find romantic connection, um, even though maybe on the surface or to sort of a, a Westerner who's kind of thinking about this, they might assume that, you know, this is a guy who's now going to be able to go have lots of fun romantic journeys when he's on break. It, it wasn't like that for him at all. And speaking of the psychological turmoil and how that can affect any human being. Uh, Siobhan, we know that the trauma of war obviously can have significant influence on how people grow up, how they grow into adulthood. How is the war impacting how the young people of Ukraine look at their future? 
Yeah, that's something that comes up a lot in conversations. Um, young Ukrainians really don't talk about the future in in that way. They kind of use the words after the victory, which is something that I know some of our colleagues have also referenced in their reporting that it comes up a lot when you when you ask anybody that question, they kind of correct your use of the word future and say, like not just the future, but after the victory, which for them is an inevitability. Um, but it is really interesting to see, and what Jeff was just saying kind of ties into this too, that there is this romanticization that happens of, of the war. And I think even the examples that I just gave earlier of those two young guys, you know, it sounds cool to say that they, you know, one was running a Molotov cocktail factory when he's 17 and the other was on the front line. And even I think they did to some degree romanticize it. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, I met other young people who were living under occupation and had survived months of Russian occupation. And they kind of talked about it as if, you know, they didn't have the chance to even resist because they just had to survive. Um, and so the way that people, you know, have experienced the war has, you know, it differs greatly depending on where they are geographically. And that also impacts what they want for themselves in the future. So, um, you know, I met one young, two young sisters and one of them, was trying to remind her little sister, like, you used to want to do this or you used to want to do that. And she sort of just shrugged and was like, you know, that was before. Um, so it's hard for, for some of them to kind of imagine returning to a normal life or having, uh, you know, any kind of civilian job because so many examples of that have just been erased from their everyday lives. Yeah, the idea of before, right, takes on a completely different meaning. So Jeff, would you say it's fair to say that the country's younger population are going through an existential crisis? Yeah, I, I didn't write about this, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting there is that, you know, for the men in the country, I, I actually embarrassed to say that I didn't really know this before I went over there, but the men in the country are not allowed to leave if they're within a certain age band. And there's been some reporting about men who are being, you know, smuggle it out because they're fearful of eventually being recruited into war. And yet there's also when you walk around, as Shabon can tell you, obviously, um, when you walk around Kiev, when you walk around Lviv, there's, you know, thousands of, of guys, you know, my age or, or a fighting age, just working and hanging out and being like living normal lives in the cities. And um, if there are exemptions for um, military service, and a lot of people just haven't gotten drafted because the front is, you know, um, all on the east at this point, and they don't need every every male on the front lines yet, um, or, or hopefully ever. But um, uh, basically, my 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 point here is that there's there's all these men who are just living normal lives, and it, it sets up this interesting question of um, what what will they say that they did during the war? And obviously, you need men beyond um, soldiers to help run the country. The country couldn't, the country's economy could not survive uh, disappearance of more than half of its labor force because the economy is you know, absolutely essential for maintaining um, you know, the country uh, and keeping it running. And so I think even for people who are not soldiers, this is a, a really interesting dilemma to wrestle with. Often they have little kids and don't want to leave them or abandon them. But then there's this um, whole of, of what, um, what are they, you know, what are they missing by not being with their comrades and their friends and actually being part of the fight um, up close? I, I do not envy um, Ukrainian fathers with young kids, for instance, who have to make that decision 
Um, it's it's uh, uh, probably under discussed, but but I think still an important part of the experience of, of war there. And before Definitely. we run out of time, some, oh, sorry. no, Siobhan, please. <laughs> Please. Sorry, I just wanted to jump in quickly and just say, you know, some of them don't have the choice because like Jeff said, it is kind of random who gets drafted sometimes and who doesn't. So at the beginning, a lot of people were volunteering to protect their own communities. And then um, through the more informal forces called territorial defense forces. And then, you know, once the Russians retreated here or there, then those people sort of had the option to either join and continue fighting or to return to their civilian lives. And when I have conversations with people about that, you know, a lot of them, like, I even feel a sense of awkwardness or discomfort that life is so different in these villages that I go to or these smaller towns out east or in the south, and then I can return to Kiev and order, you know, a flat white or an Aperol spritz. And it's like, how am I in the same country as what I just saw was happening? Um, but what a lot of young Ukrainians have told me is this is what they're fighting for. Like, they're fighting for us to have the chance to go to a, co a coffee shop or a bar and to have some sense of normalcy and that everyone feels like they've just been reminded how short life is and that they should enjoy it and if it if they haven't been called up yet you know there are many ways to contribute to the war effort and I think very few people aren't contributing at all um everyone's involved or connected in some way and so it's just interesting to see how people grapple with that identity and how they sort of explain these things to themselves because they are really uncomfortable questions. I was 100% agree. That was great. And Jeff will give you the final thought. What do you think young people in the Ukraine are reflecting on as we mark the one year since um, Russia first started their invasion and turned their country into an active war zone? Oh man, so tough to speak for like an entire generation like that or be asked that question. I, I, I can't really purport to have a good answer to that. I mean, I think there's... Uh, I don't know if this really answers your question, but I was just so struck by um, the solidarity of people there with um, uh, other parts of the country. I mean, right now the war is really being fought over, I think it's fair to say, a relatively small part of land in the East. And yet, even for people whose lives in the West or Western part of the country are still being really hurt by the war, I have never, I, maybe Siobhan, heard some of this, but I, every single person, young person I talked to, there's not a hint of, yeah, maybe we should turn over uh, part of the Eastern land so we can uh, resume our normal lives. There's just not a scintilla of that in any of the conversations I had. And it's sort of a, a breathtaking degree of um, resolve and courage to say, even though it's such an impediment to all these things we've been talking about, um, I'm still willing to make that sacrifice because I believe that all of my countrymen should be liberated and freed and not have to live under, under this Russian oppression. Liberation. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Siobhan and Jeff, thank you both for joining me on Washington Post Live. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.